6.14 a.m. 19th of Tishot. Year. 9.76. Or 23. By the Tovaran calendar. I am torn, dear stranger. The marking of time has ever been an indicator of civilization. And no doubt these entries require linear demarcation. However, I am loath to give my assent to an impractical system, regardless of its claims of modernity. The Tavaran calendar is ridiculous and impractical, but far be it from me to question the eternal wisdom of the Natonic ecclesiarchy. No, I simply refuse. I shall use the infinitely more accurate and agrarian solar calendar, commissioned by the second Nagif. May he burn for all eternity, but the bastard gave us a damn fine set of dates. I could go on on calendars and the Nagifs, but... I have already recorded a supplemental lecture on the subject. Join the Institute if you're curious. They could use the funding. That is, assuming you're not already a member. In any case, rather than fight my own impulses, I shall indeed record a diary. Ideally, to be kept separate from my case files. I shall be sending my written diaries back to the Institute to be catalogued and stored. Not to be read by curious acolytes or nosy former apprentices. But I digress. As my journey continues, my path and its chronology may be of import, especially in places such as this. Here in the north, in the wood and mud of Kemavec, the day is shortened to a sliver, and while the people have little use for the bureaucratic and calendrical reforms of the Natonic politics, they must track the days to first light and their preference will always lie in the practical. Letters and dictates from the Church, reporting the glory and radiance of the Third Enlightenment, will only hold off the bitter cold and long nights, so long as they can burn in the fireplace. Apologies. I am freshly awakened and feeling prickly. However, my newest cultivar of Saccharomyces or Jealous is working its magic, so to speak and I can feel my synapses positively bursting. Though, admittedly, the shifting textures on the walls of my caravan are certainly making it difficult to concentrate. But I shall endeavor to push on. Thank you, good rune of the Wedwood. This is exactly what I needed. Her cupboards and terraria were replete with new bacterial strains and fungal cultivars. The Wedwood. Believe me when I tell you that that dank patch of withered willows lives up to its name. Ian near refused outright to enter the witch's swamp with our caravan in tow, possibly for fear of a broken axle, or possibly his own natural superstitions and fear of witches. But a coughing about the air smartened him up a bit. Though miserable the Wedwood may have been, its keeper is nowhere near so dour. In fact, I found her to be amiable hospitable, and above all, courteous, save her refusal to allow me to record our conversations. I imagine there are few who will knowingly subject themselves to any device constructed by a negific cultist, especially followers of Shiga. I could have lied, of course, but in a world rich in madness and deceit, I strive ever to be poor. We talked long into the night, swapping stories and even songs once our cups had caught up with us. She had little to teach me as regards to the alchemical, 
but her talent for biotics is second to none. In addition to some new spores and liquid cultures, I picked up a few shortcuts and techniques for starting new cultivars in spaces with varying temperatures, such as my caravan. I won't bore you with the details. I have been meaning to record my notes on biotics. Another time. Gudrun was also a wealth of knowledge in the upcoming leg of my journey. As regards to case 001, Mavetaviride Rivericon, my initial instincts were correct. My patient Zero fled north. The good witch confirmed seeing a man matching his description, heading north by northwest along the Kemov High Road, on his way to Jostok, no doubt. <sighs> Additionally, she indicated two points of interest for me. A couple dozen kilometers north of the Wetwood is the castle Nistrad, a small keep whose position as a linchpin in the defense of Kemovec was proven time and time again during the Age of Cults. The family Vradov are its stewards, and the de facto rulers after the Nistrov bloodline was wiped out during the Second Great Plague. But even after 250-odd years of service, the royal family has yet to grant the Vradovs land and title. Rumors that some Nistrov deaths were not entirely viral in nature have cast a pall upon any such ambitions. They say a Kemovich grudge never dies, and I am inclined to believe them. According to our generous host, the Vradov family are known sympathizers to the cause of true natural philosophy, perhaps an act of rebellion against their devoutly Natonic royalty. Moreover, there is said to be some lingering illness among the family. Gudrun has offered her services on numerous occasions, but it would seem that despite their heretical inclinations, consorting with a witch is a bridge too far. It also turns out that my map is out of date. There is a pass to Jostok in the northeast, created by some seismic activity. This will take weeks off my travel, and I will be able to visit an old friend, a woman I am sure you will find to be both fascinating case study and wonderful person. The day matures, and if I am to make Nistrat keep by nightfall, I shall first need to make haste. Perhaps her steward will grace me with a royal welcome, in exchange for my services, of course. I shan't hold my breath. <clears throat> worse comes to worse, the caravan serves well in a pinch. Though with the nights growing colder, Ian will need to bunk with me, and the boy snores like a pack of pneumoniac boars, and after a long day's travel, could give their stench a run for their money. Nothing, young Markovad. Nothing at all. Twentieth of Teshot continues. Nistrad Keep. I have been welcomed with open arms by Antonin Vradov, Lord Steward of these lands. Though to hear him tell it, the local magistrate appointed by the Jostovs holds the true power. Oh, but Lord Vradov, what to say? He is every bit the boorish northerner cliché. Loud, boisterous, with odd spikes of suspicious stoicism. At any moment... One may fear they've insulted a bloodline or violated some esoteric hospitality law that was tacked onto a beef cattle initiative from the Third Nagafit. Though he is not a tall man, not all Kemovich are, despite the rumors and stereotypes. He is bearded, though, heavily so. One wonders how his voice booms through the holes with that thick black tangle covering his mouth. 
or how he eats for that matter. Watching him part that pubescent curtain only to catch some of it in his teeth was a discomforting experience. <clears throat> Hirsutism aside, the man was clean and well-dressed, with ruddy cheeks, blue eyes, and thick hands of northern royalty. The Kemovich have always been fond of reaching outside their family tree for fresh fruit, so to speak. Doubtless a major contributor to their resilience through the age of cults. Honestly, I had prepared for a dull lesson in Kemovich heredity. But he seemed more interested in my trade. After a fair amount of between-the-lines hinting, he finally burst out and admitted himself a heretic. No doubt in that moment he realized he could just kill me and throw me to the dogs if I did not share his sentiments. With that topic broached, we relaxed somewhat, but not so much that he could simply come out and ask for my assistance. Kemovec culture is one of blunt honesty and appreciation for hard truth. Not cruel, mind, just unvarnished. So, as you can imagine, having a man so nervous about his intentions feels odd somehow. I see now why Gudrun of the Wetwood struggled to ingratiate herself to Lord Antonin, not to mention his archaic attitudes towards women. His wife did not attend supper, and he made his feelings toward the Jostov matriarchy and her progressive politics quite clear. I shall not fret, though. He will come to me in time. It could be seen in his eyes. The building of courage, or perhaps conviction, like a rising tide, threatening to sweep clean the shores of social decorum. I imagine we shall begin anew in the morning. Until then, however, he has granted me access to his liquor cabinet and his library. I can hardly contain my joy. This far from the Mahala Strait, books are a rarity. They have become my de facto currency, you see. Sure, I keep enough coin on hand for necessities and trail foods, bulk goods, etc., and I can always open a line of credit against the Institute. But when it comes to equipment, repairs, research materials, and more secretive trades, no currency can best the written word. Thus has it been since the first Nagif, and thus will it always be so long as we live under the threat of another. Even now, with this recording device, I still have Ian copy all of my less sensitive notes multiple times into small journals, in case I need to trade. With key gaps, of course, I wouldn't want to beggar myself by flooding the market, as it were. Oh, but to have access to a library, even a modest one, it brings a tear to my eye and a longing to my heart for the Natonic Order for all of their stricture and scripture and misguided attempts at misinformation. Theirs was a wealth of knowledge unequaled. The Red of Buntwine Institute is information-rich as well, of course, and certainly more accessible, but nothing compared to the vast stacks to be found in the twin cities of the Mahala Strait. Forgive me, I am waxing nostalgic. I shall put this recording to bed, so to speak. Not myself, of course. I have reading to do. And brandy to acquaint myself with. Twentieth to short. Not perhaps twenty-first now. No matter. I tell you, dear stranger, I am astounded by misinformation. I suppose it is inevitable 
in a world so sparse and cruel. Yet I am often shocked to find that even the educated believe in the metaphysical. In telepathy, telekinesis, pyrokinesis, as though a humble human could conjure such abilities. From what source, I ask you? Human clerics cannot account for the energy required to levitate an object. What fuel would burn to summon a flame? The previous evening's Jesus. <laughs> Telepathy, I'll grant you. Telepathy could be a misinterpretation of more subtle things. But to suggest that some signal can be transmitted through the air or that one might contact the spirits. Oh, ghosts, ghosts! Don't get me started on spectres. Not here, and not now. I shall summon my resources and muster my finest arguments before I bore you with my distaste for the spiritual. I must someday soon take the time to study the commonalities among Shigai infections and the delusional folklore of the common people. I suppose I cannot blame these poor sods. I am, I suppose, equally susceptible to falsehoods and well-placed rumor. How easily it is to draw false conclusions in the light of false information. Sometimes I wonder if the infections of sugar are in fact in all of us, poisoning our minds. A silent madness. No man born free of its grasp. A few years back, I was in southern Artonia investigating claim that a, a wraith had... Uh, Apologies. I thought I heard something. I shall investigate. Perhaps a loose hound. Just as well. It was a boring story anyway. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm.
28th of Tishaw. Year 976. Case number 002. The Hounds of Nisrad Keep. Abstract. A rare mutation in the Vradov family of Nisrad Keep has resulted in a strange presentation of Lashana Nagifa Perezev. It is impossible to calculate the total deaths. However, first-hand accounts place the number somewhere north of 14 violent casualties, eight of which were non-fatal, resulting in six confirmed infections, four of which were terminal. While only one patient remains infected, I shall endeavor to treat this not as a single case, but a generational affliction, which made itself known through my investigation. The history of this family's exposure is relevant and will be elaborated upon as necessary. I would be lying now to say I was not tempted to expose myself to the disease which has ravaged the Vradovs and their people. A tantalizing proposition, whatever the cost. My body is old, my eyes have begun to fail, and in the end, the rewards seem almost to outweigh the risks. That is, assuming, of course, that I do not suffer the same fate as the boy. Introduction Subject Lashna Nagifa, Berezev Also known as Beast Fever, Raven's Curse, and Curing Plague. Beast fever is a transformative viral infection, thus the domain of Lashana. It begins by accelerating the metabolic processes, altering the DNA and taxing the pituitary gland to trigger gruesome transformations, typically resulting in the death of the infected. Early symptoms include severe rash, fever, extreme hunger and hypersensitivity to emotional triggers. Total acute alopecia, followed by the sloughing of the epidermis. Pathotype, Pera. Perezev infections encourage occasional cannibalistic impulses and violent tendencies, as well as hypersexuality. This results in saliva, blood, or other bodily fluids entering the bloodstream through open wounds or mucous membranes. It is important to note the difference here between the Ravik pathotype and the Pera pathotype where Rav compels an explicit need to consume the flesh of other humans. With Pera, cannibalistic impulses are simply an extension of the primal impulses exaggerated by the infection, namely hunger and rage. Serotype Zev Perhaps somewhat on the nose given the folklore surrounding this disease, the Zev serotype, meaning wolf in the old tongue, does what it says on the tin. Or so it would seem to the uninformed. In truth, the Ravazev virus and its transformation produces neither wolf nor human-wolf hybrid. The seemingly lupine features manifested are holdovers from a common mammalian ancestor whose name escapes me right now. See the works of Gregory Akkad, particularly The Former Faces of Man, an education on the nature of Natonic evolution theory. Or read the Devorah, an oversimplified, overwrought, and needlessly poetic regurgitation of the same facts with a self-indulgent religious flair. <clears throat> Pardon my frustration. The Natonic penchant for partially digesting greater works before spewing them into the mewling mouths of its flock has always turned my stomach. Now, 
the traits these infected adopt would be closer to a rodent. But were-rat lacks so much flair. Locality. The source of the infection was a Homzek monk turned plague peddler in Vrahim, a port town on the east coast of Sulfar. I imagine his order frowned upon the notion of capitalizing on potentially beneficial infections. After all, they serve the Nagafim. After initial exposure, the infection was brought to Nistrad. 2,083 residents according to the census of 968. Case Presentation Antonin Vradov, steward of Nistrad Keep, was first infected by Lashana Nagifa Perezev at age 50, after a nasty fall from his horse. With several broken ribs, concussion, and a collapsed lung, Antonin was rushed to a nearby keep whose location and name has been withheld to protect the family involved. It would seem it is not uncommon to deliberately infect the injured and unwell with Perezev, as the resultant transformation may as well be a panacea. Obviously, this is delayed as long as possible to maximize the benefit but with Antonin's condition so grave, it was necessary to take action. After the initial infection, Antonin's condition was closely monitored by several physicians. The steward was restrained and force-fed a nutrient-rich slurry, including some biotic cultures, a rarity among physicians. It seemed they were ready to try anything, even blasphemy. Within 24 hours of initial infection, the patient began to present with a fever and severe rash, worse in areas where friction is of greater concern, such as underarms, thighs, major joints, etc. With the help of a well-placed puncture, the collapsed lung was able to right itself, and the patient was placed under relaxed watch. Over the next several days, the patient began to present hostile behavior toward his caregivers, turned captors. Despite the breaks in his ribs, Antonin was frantic in his escape attempts. Fearing further injury, the lead physician called for a sedative and muscle relaxant tonic. While this did curb the worst of the outbursts, the patient remained firmly awake and cognizant. After roughly eight days of infection, Antonin had already lost all of his hair, including eyebrows and eyelashes. It was not until day 16 that the worst of the symptoms made themselves known. The initial rash progressed into sores, lesions, and eventually the epidermis began to slough away, revealing the raw, inflamed dermis beneath. This alopecia was followed by extreme hirsutism, beginning on the forearms, shoulders, face, scalp, and back. I suspect Perezev dramatically increases serum testosterone and inhibits estradiol, resulting in an extreme presentation of secondary sexual characteristics. Blood began pooling beneath nail beds in the gums and eyes, followed by a loosening of fingernails, toenails, and eventually teeth. Thick claws carved grooves into the nail beds as they forced their way into position. Bulging calcium deposits deformed cheekbones and jaw, their growth pressing brittle broken teeth from the gums. All the while Antonin screamed in agony. This process lasted days. Analgesics were useless. Sedatives had no effect. His caregivers 
could only wait and feed him. It should be noted here that by my estimations at least, it would require a minimum of one-fourth of a patient's body weight in nutrient and protein-rich food each day to sustain the transformation. And it must be sustained, for any gap in nutrition would result in permanent damage to the patient, up to and including death, as the body cannibalizes itself to meet the demand for calories. After 34 full days, the transformation was complete. A dramatic increase in muscle mass and bone density. Thickened dermis, heavy claws on the hands and feet. Crowded fangs replaced teeth and a slew of other minor mutations. The patient had long since destroyed his restraints and was now enclosed in a cell, which had been crafted by local smiths and affixed to the floor around the patient's bed. What I find most troubling is that this has no amnestic effect. The patient is fully aware of every moment. Worse, the hyperstimulation of the adrenal gland and total disarray of the endocrine system serves as a memory enhancer, a gallery of vivid horrors for the victim's mind to reflect upon in the wee hours. If only the process ended there. What followed was forty days of the same nightmare, only now in reverse. Tissues autocannibalizing, fangs and claws forced broken from the body to make way for new teeth and nails, excess bone pushed through open wounds, everything again. However, by the end of the reversal, Antonin Vradov was born anew. Not only had his ribs and organ damage been healed, nearly every sign of his aging had reversed itself. What remained at the end was a man in his late twenties or early thirties, whose only ailments were congenital. Remarkable. Truly remarkable. My experience with this affliction has been limited solely to the lower classes, small villages which could never sustain such a transformation without devastating their herds and crops. The notion that this process has been put to use by families of means to extend life and wellness is staggering and somewhat horrifying. Unfortunately, I am not here to report on the wild success of Antonin Vradov. No, I have been charged with addressing the state of his firstborn son. Rudigor Vradov was born sickly, drastically underweight at birth, and made somewhat simple due to the oxygen deprivation in the womb. His infancy was a never-ending gauntlet of illnesses, injuries, and struggle. His arrival at adolescence was a miracle to a family who had suffered much at the hands of fate. However, when the boy fell ill with cradle rot at the age of 15, a common illness in infancy that can be fatal to older children, the Vradov family was forced to do whatever was necessary to see Rudigor to a healthy adulthood. His illness would not permit travel, and the virus cannot live so long without a living host. And so it fell to Galena Vradov, Antonin's wife, to transport the infection from Vrahim and Sulfa, where a former Homzak had set up shop. 
by the time she returned to Nistradkeep, Lady Vradova had already begun transformation. The physicians quickly set about infecting young Rudigal, and, out of misguided sentimentality and flawed quarantine protocol, contained both mother and son together, resulting in two minor casualties, a nurse and a physician. The physician was spared the virus, but the nurse was not so lucky, and she succumbed to starvation some weeks after, by concealing her condition. There were also reports of inappropriate coupling between mother and son, an understandable, if unsettling, response to the rage of hormones coursing through the bodies of these poor souls. <clears throat> Casualties and incest aside, the initial process was much the same in both Lady Vradova and Master Rudigor. However, on the twentieth day of Rudigor's infection, in the weeks leading to spring, a minor mishap led to further tragedy. An as-yet-unidentified servant left the door to the larder open. A combination of rodents and an untimely increase in temperature destroyed the vast majority of the food reserves at Nistratkeep, leaving Rudigor and Galena without necessary calories to sustain their transformations. At first, the steward offered ludicrous sums to his subjects in exchange for their herds and crops. They refused as would anyone who had witnessed even a tail end of a Kemethek winter. He considered sending guards to pillage the homes of the people, but he knew that if he did, his reign would not survive to see the spring. A mob of vengeful Kemethich are not above punishing a child to see justice done to a father. Realizing the gravity of his situation, and in a fit of ghoulish desperation, Antonin Vradov, took the only course of action that his strained and troubled mind could conjure. He turned to the dungeons for unspoiled meat. The prisoners of Nistrad Keep were sentenced to gruesome and untimely death. Though limited in numbers, their grim sacrifice was adequate nourishment for the family Vradov. I do not believe in curses, nor do I believe in some universal cosmic balance. But I do know that Antonin suffered for his barbarity, if not in equal measure. In the throes of viral insanity, and under the influence of the most dangerous madness of all, love, the mother volunteered her ration to her son, without the knowledge of the physicians. Because of this, Lady Vradova was not able to sustain her transformation back to her human form. The result was extreme deformity. The absence of protein resulted in a wasting of her musculature, to the point where she now struggles to remain standing for more than a few minutes at a time. Multiple vitamin and mineral deficiencies have ravaged her organs and senses. Her body cannot process most foods, often leading to violent rejection, but worst of all, the lack of calcium-rich greens and dairy weakened her bones and prevented human teeth from reforming. Her mouth, now a tangle of malformed tooth and rotten fang, bleeds and inflames with alarming frequency. The good lady requires all meals to be pasted and pulped, that she might be spared the self-inflicted injury and further infections that comes with chewing. <laughs> <laughs>
Would that her sacrifice were not in vain. Rudigor's recovery was remarkable. Not only had he been cured of his cradle rot, but his birth defects, being non-congenital, were reversed during Perizev infection. He became a voracious reader and skilled fighter, aided, of course, by the residual effects of the transformation. Rudigor was the very model of a royal heir, and despite his wife's condition, Antonin could not have been happier. That is, until the summer of 972. One month prior to the boy's 16th birthday, three months after his transformation had completed, he approached the family physician with a rash. Believing this to be no more than bed sores, he provided an unguent and sent the boy on his way. But at dinner, when he attempted to bite his father's hand for trying to take away a bone that the boy had been gnawing, a dawning horror came to the family Radov. Once again, the heir to Nistrad Keep was contained, that he might suffer through a hell of his own flesh, as his body was rent and sundered, only to be built anew in most violent fashion. A false hope bloomed that the mother might be reinfected, that she might recover from her own cruel fate. However, oh so tragically, Lashna Nagifa Perizev instills a powerful immunity after initial infection, making reinfection impossible. That is, in most cases. For poor Rudigor, the cycle begins anew, again and again, with a mere three months' reprieve between nightmares. He is fully cognizant of his condition, and while his suffering is immense, he is not despondent. In fact, he is much like any boy his age with an infirmity that must be managed. When asked about the potential of harm he might do to others, he expressed a solemnity and gravity worthy of the danger, and it was every bit as practiced and prescriptive as one might expect of a noble scion. With my eyes unclouded by the love of his father, it was clear that the boy was flush, with quickened breath. If one did not know any better, one might say he seemed excited by the prospect. I imagine, or perhaps hope, this was due to the fresh completion of his transformation. The alternative is... In fact, he has on two different occasions escaped his captivity. An account of the boy's first escape can be found in Addendum A. Read by me, as told by Matron Sveta, personal attendant to the Lady Galena Verdova. It is a harrowing tale, and while it does not offer much in the way of data, it provides vital context to the horror that this disease can cause if left unchecked. All exposed to the virus during the escape were brought to the Keep Infirmary for treatment. Twelve wounded in total, fifteen terminal. Of the remaining seven, five were infected, with three sustaining the transformation. The families were sworn to secrecy and provided with a tidy sum for their suffering. In the four grueling years since Rudigar's infection, medicine has turned to alchemy. Alchemy to biotics. The Vradov family has only fallen short of eldritch arts, 
in pursuit of relief for its eldest son and heir. I wish, dear stranger, that I could say I swept in like a hero of the First Enlightenment to save the Radov boy from his hell and reverse the agonies of that poor mother. But all it took was the clever application of natural philosophy to right the lives of these tortured souls. Alas, reality is rarely so forgiving as the fiction of scripture. Third of Hashan, year 976, case number 002 continues. Treatment and outcome. Combing through the family records, it would seem that poor Rudigor was not the only Vradov to suffer the raven's curse. One great-grandfather by the name of Armast was reported to be extremely reclusive, appearing only a few months at a time before returning to his studies at a nearby monastic observatory. The archivist in question, who kept these family records, boldly approached the monastery despite the threat of incurring his lord's wrath, and reported screams of agony from within. After a trip to this observatory, I found personal journals containing numerous treatments and their effects. After a bit of cross-referencing with my own knowledge, and those remedies already implemented by the Nistrad physicians, I believe I have constructed a means of prolonging the downcycle of the disease while lessening the suffering of the upcycle. It should be noted that, due to folklore, there are numerous remedies that should at no point be implemented. Wolfsbane, despite its name, has no meaningful effect on those stricken with Perizev. It is in fact quite poisonous in all but the smallest doses. It should not be ingested under any circumstances unless supervised by a trained physician or natural philosopher. Further, neither colloidal silver nor any silver in any form has any effect on this disease. This is pure nonsense. As to how silver of all metals became the repellent du jour and cure-all for plague mutants is beyond me. For patients whose transformation was not sustained, as in the case of Galena Vradova, Steroidal biotics coupled with a rigorous physical therapy regimen has been seen to restore some strength. Muscle growth has even accelerated in the afflicted, though patients exhibit no desire to be active. Recovery may require some tough love, and even force-feeding should the patient prove recalcitrant. As for treatment at the height of Perizev infection, it is recommended to increase all standard dosages by 300% to account for the high metabolic rate. Grub root is known to slow metabolism and as such may prolong the transformation process but lessen its severity. Adelaide's wish, when brewed in a tea, is a dangerous neurotoxin. However, its chief effect, damage to the pituitary gland, is rapidly repaired by Perizev. This further lessens the severity, potentially even stopping short of full maturation. Unfortunately, neither of these can offer much for Rudigor. There is only one guaranteed cure for the poor boy's condition. And it is the only thing that my friend Antonin would never permit. To make matters worse, Rudigor's younger brothers, Antol and Ivar, are not healthy boys and may require Perizev infection before long. Conclusion 
Rudigor Vradov of Nistrad bears an unidentified hereditary condition which prevents Lashana Nagifa Perezev from running its course, resulting in chronic reinfection. Protective equipment. Early stages require restraint. Avoid rope, chain, or any material that may allow the patient to harm themselves, resulting in secondary infections. Instead, leather straps should be used to bind the full body to a chair or bed. Transport is ill-advised in these early stages and requires full sedation. For such subdual, I recommend increasing sedative dosages by a factor of 10, as the patient's increased metabolism will ensure rapid recovery and prevent any permanent organ damage. At middle and late stages, patients should be contained in some matter of padded cell, reinforced with steel or stone. Caregivers should be clad in leather, with no exposed skin, to prevent possible injury and infection. You will get tired of hearing it, and I will get tired of saying it, but it bears repeating. As always, masks and gloves are essential. Estimated mortality. If provided sufficient calories to sustain transformation and well-protected environment to prevent injury, less than 2% are at significant risk of death due to infection. However, for those without resources and privileges of nobility, I estimate 95% mortality, with survivors often suffering permanent disfigurement. Next Steps I cannot stay. Antonin has been a wonderful host and blessed me with over a dozen books as payment. He even offered to send my case notes and samples to the Institute with one of his personal carriers. That spares me the dread of delay and lost packages. I do wish I could remain and care for his son. If only so that I might learn more of his fascinating ailment. But I have other duties. I have already lost so much ground against the Revericon carrier. Idom, and whoever is listening, please send one of our heredity specialists and endocrinologists to Nistrat Keep. This is worth whatever resources you can muster. And try to get a stable non-human carrier. The folk name Raven's Curse suggests that Corvids might be a good candidate. I can't help but wonder... If some congenital mutation led to this tragedy, perhaps another might lessen the symptoms. In any case, I'm not sure it's worth the risk. At least not until we find whatever heredity led to poor Rudigor's condition. Well, I am off to Jostock. Gudrun's shortcut should make up for my lost time. But by the end of Hishon, these lands will become impassable and I hope to be nestled by a warm fire in the capital by then. Perhaps my old friend, Ophelia Bejumani, will take me in. Oh, dear stranger, what a woman. What a case study. I do so hope I can acquaint you with the Madam of Many Faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Heresies of Redolf Part 1. Written, edited, and voiced by myself, Zachary Golden. This marks one month since I began this tale, and audience response has been fantastic. Please, if you have the opportunity, give Thorb a five-star rating 
and share it with your friends. At the moment, I do not have a steady source of income, and I'm living entirely off of my Patreon. If you enjoy this show, I would like to hear more of it. Please consider a small monthly donation to the Patreon, which can be found at thorb.info. If there is any content you would like to see on the Patreon, please let me know. And if you have any questions, comments, or issues with the content of the show, please reach out to admin at slapdashstudios.com. If you enjoy Dungeons & Dragons, consider listening to my actual play D&D podcast, A League of Ultimate Questing, set in a world where adventuring is a spectator sport, complete with color commentators, lore-building meta-segments, and hilarious in-world advertisements for products like Viagra, for barbarians who can't quite keep their rage up like they used to. We've just started our third season, and it's a perfect time to join. Previous seasons do not pertain to this one. Case 003, The Madam of Many Faces, will be published on the 1st of March, and bonus episodes between. Thank you so much again for listening, dear stranger. Stranger.